Well, good to see you all here. We're going to pick up in Genesis uh, before Genesis 12. Uh, real quick reminder before we get started in God's Word. Uh, this Friday, or Saturday rather, we have men's breakfast. And also going to do some work around the church, do some cleanup, do some projects. Encourage you to come on out uh, and participate in that. It'll be a great time of fellowship and uh, also an act of worship, quite honestly. Uh, singing songs isn't the only way we worship God. Uh, one of the ways is just simply serving Him in various ways. Uh, and uh, there will be some practical opportunities to do that this Saturday. encourage you to come out if you're available uh, to um, just lend a hand. Uh, so, opening up God's Word, we're going to start in Genesis 12, picking up where we left off. So, last week we talked about the birth of various tongues and nations and peoples. We got an introduction to uh, really kind of the world stage and, and what was going on in the world at that time. And God kind of laid out for us uh, how all the people groups got to where they are, the languages, and, and everything kind of got, got its start. And that gave us the prequel to uh, now really turning a whole new chapter, in essence, in Genesis here, a whole new section that's now zooming in and dealing specifically with Abraham, with his family, with, uh, with the Israelite nation, with that special chosen people of his through which he would bring his ultimate plan of redemption through which he'd bring the Redeemer. So we're, we're zooming in here to the main event. We're zooming in and, and kind of backing off of the world stage and looking very specifically at the line of Abraham here in chapter 12. So we're going to see God's call on Abraham. We're going to see how Abraham responds, which actually in this chapter he's called Abram. Not a, he's not called Abraham yet. We'll get to that later. But um, we're going to see uh, not only how God interacted with him, but how did Abram respond? What did, what did he do? What did he say? And then we're also going to get to see him falter a little bit and struggle and some things that we can relate to. Some I know certainly know I can relate to. And so we're going to pick up starting in chapter 12, verse 1. If you want to turn there and join me. And it says, Now the Lord... The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, and to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And so you shall be bless a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was seventy-five years old. When he departed from Haran, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And thus they came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. <coughs> now the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And so he built an altar here, there, to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then he proceeded from there to the mountain east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And then Abram journeyed on, continuing toward Negev. And there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This 
is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys, male and female servants, and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord has struck Pharaoh and his house with a great plague because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Wow. So quite a start to Abraham's journey. He had some success here right off the bat, and then not so much a little later on. So let's pick up here in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. The name Abram literally means high father or exalted father. It's an, it's an interesting title, but it's the initial title given to Abram or name that Abram had. And uh, it really points to God's calling on his life, that he was going to be the father of a great nation, as we see he's promised. Um, but his name is going to go on to change up in chapter 17. We're going to see that it'll be changed to Abraham, which is the name we know him by, meaning father of a multitude. And it speaks to God's promise. So, first of all, here we have the call to go. There's two steps in obeying the call of God, really, and we see this here. And God says, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. So the first thing is letting go. Many times when God calls us to things or tells us to go somewhere or to do something, the first step is letting go of whatever we're doing at that time. Amen? We're usually not just sitting around available. We usually make plans. We usually kind of do our own thing. We have a way we are going. I know with my children, when it's chore time or there's things to do, they're usually extremely busy and preoccupied with very important matters. And it's, it's funny how they have to, they, they have to, sometimes they struggle with letting go of their plans to, to do mine. But we, as children of God, we have a similar struggle, don't we? Not only in obedience, but in just holy living. You know, it's, it, we have to abandon evil and pursue good, don't we? We have to abandon the things of this world and pursue God. And so there's two facets to this. So the first thing is to leave something or to let go of something. And he tells Abram here to get out of his country, go from his family, leave his father's house. So everything that he's been building and establishing with his family there in Haran, he had to let it all go. He had to, he had to give it up. He had to uproot and he had to move. Philippians 3, chapter 7, or chapter, I'm sorry, Philippians 3, verse 7 through 13 illustrates, illustrates this really well for me. Um, Philippians 3, 7 through 13 says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. So we see here, you know, Paul, he, he knew this principle. And Abram did too. 
that he had to first let go of all the things he might hold dear, the things of this world, the things that we may think are really important. Sometimes God asks us to give those things up, doesn't he? Sometimes he kind of has to pry them out of our hands so that he can put something better in them. And Abram was very honorable in this, and, and his faith is, is renowned. And because of this very thing, this first step, we're not told that he struggled with it or that he took a couple years to get around to it. It says he up and went. And as we read on, on in this story, James 1 also talks about the doubting or double-minded man. You remember that in James chapter 1 where it talks about how dangerous it is to be doubting or to be double-minded and, and to ask God. And it says uh, anyone who has, is that way and asks God for anything, don't expect to receive anything from the Lord. You have to be single-minded. God has to be your most important, your number one. Jesus himself in Luke chapter 14 Verse 25, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow, that's, that's a pretty powerful challenge. A pretty powerful challenge to abandon something for the sake of the Lord, for the sake of following him. Now, we need to be clear on this. Obviously, is God advocating hating our family, to literally hate them? No, of course not. We know God is a God of love, right? He's not going to tell us to do that, but he's making a very important point here. He's not literally saying we should abandon or hate or mistreat our family and friends. First uh, Timothy 5.8, I think, helps clarify this because it says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So clearly, Scripture teaches us we're to care for our family. We're to care for those God has entrusted to us. We're not supposed to just abandon them or, or hate them or mistreat them. We're exhorted here in Scripture farther on uh, that we are supposed to take good care of them. And to, to fail to do that is, is, a, is a major failing as a Christian. So the point here, I think, is clear. Is that if our friends and family try to lure us from, away from following God, if they become a hindrance in our lives to following God, if it comes to a point where we have to make a choice between listening to our family and doing what they want us to do or listening to God, where there, there's a clear divide there, we have to choose God. We have to choose to obey God rather than man, whether that be our brother or sister or wife or anyone. That ultimately, when it comes down to it, God is the most important thing. If we ever had to choose between the two, he would be our choice. So it is not to abandon or to hate our family and friends, but our following of Christ should be unshakable. Our desire to please God should surpass the desire to appease our family and friends. And that can be tough sometimes. That can be really tough, but that is what God calls us to do. And that's what he called Abram to do here. He called him to up and leave the rest of the family leave everything that he had known and gotten secure with and go somewhere new. You know, we've hold the, heard the old adage, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Ever heard that? I always thought that was weird because, you know, when you first, at first glance, I would think that, well, what else would I do with my cake? Of course I'm going to eat it. You know, come on. But what it's talking about there, obviously, is you can't save your cake and eat your cake. You've got to either save it or eat it. You can't preserve it and consume it. Um, but the idea is you can't have the best of both worlds. You cannot, you cannot try and pursue and successfully obtain two incompatible things. And so you've got to release something to pursue God. I think uh, it also makes me think of, 
um, you know, long ago working at the camp at the zip line, um, you know, we got quite a few terrified kids up in that tree. And, uh, you know, they would, they wanted to go, but they couldn't let go of the tree. You know, and it's it pretty much uh, those things were mutually exclusive. You had to let go of one thing in order to go out the gate. Sometimes it was me they wanted to hang on to. Sometimes with desperation, they'd grab my shirt or my arm or anything they could flailing and grab. And I had to be ready for that, and I had to be holding onto the railing. Otherwise, I would get to go for a ride that was not intended. But um, it, that's, the lesson is the same. We've got to let go, and we've got to pursue God. And anything that would hold us back from that, we must first release. And then the second thing is, as it says here, um, and then go to the land I will show you. So we've got to then first once letting go to pursue what God is telling us to pursue. Philippians 3, uh, picking up back in verse 8, the latter part of verse 8, we read before how Paul is talking about counting all things as rubbish for the sake of Christ. But reading on it says, so that I may gain Christ. So he let goes, lets go of all those things. For why? For what purpose? So that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him, <clears throat> not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So now he's laying out very clearly what's he pursuing. He talked about what he abandoned, what he was willing to lay aside. And now what is he pursuing? He's pursuing Christ. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself to having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the essence of the call of God. It's letting go of those things that are holding us back and hindering us, those things that would capture our attention, those things that would capture our hearts, that nothing would be more valuable than pursuing God, that God, that Christ in our lives would permeate everything we do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is to be in official ministry. That means that how you do your work is ministry whether it's a mechanic or a landscaper or a pastor, that why you do it and how you do it is a service and wor act of worship to God. That's what that means. And God says, where does he say he's going to have him go? You know, don't I just love how, how God always spells things out so clearly when he gives us direction? He gives us every single step, lays it all out. No, not really. Uh, he's never done that for me. If he's done that for you, wow, I'm jealous. But here he says to Abram in this call, go to land that I will show you. So he doesn't really give him a lot of detail, does he? He says, go that way. And I'll, I'll tell you when to stop, when you bump into something. Uh, and many times that's how God gives me direction. That's how God gives us direction sometimes. One step at a time. Hebrews 11.8 talks about Abram's faith in this situation because it says, By faith Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. So Hebrews 8.11, or I'm sorry, Hebrews 11.8, uh, talks about that very thing. Abram didn't, Abraham didn't know where he was going, but God said go, so he went, trusting that the next steps would be shown. 
By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has its foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And obviously, earlier on there in, in chapter 11 in Hebrews, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that seek him. So it's faith. And many times, just as surely as we'll read later when they're called upon to cross the sea and they first got to get their feet wet before the waters part, many times God tells us to take that step, to take that step that maybe doesn't make complete sense yet or we don't know what's next. And we like to have the whole plan laid out. But God doesn't work that way because there's faith involved. He doesn't want us to just kind of run off on our own and do it our way or feel that we can do it in our own power. There's a dependency there. And God allows that dependency to remain intact because he only gives us sometimes just the next step that we need. And honestly, I think if he gave us the whole plan, it would just scare us to death. We wouldn't do it. That's probably the reality. You know, if he, if, and, if, and looking backward, honestly, in my own life, seeing all the places that he has led me, if I knew the whole plan, there's a lot of things I would have avoided. Can you, anybody with me on that? You know, looking back, seeing some of the things God has brought you through, some of the things he's used to mold you and to shape you, or even the ways he may be using you now. I know I never had a plan to be up here. I can tell you that. And if you'd ask me in high school uh, if this was any, even on my agenda in any way, shape, or form, I would say, absolutely not. I'm very happy with the back row. Thank you very much. You know, but God brought me through a variety of things and had to grow me and work in me to make me willing to obey him in this way. And the same thing with each one of us. And if he laid out the whole plan, I think we'd probably go running. Many times we would. And I'm thankful that he's, he's gentle with us that way. And it makes me think of um, a movie, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Anyone seen that? Just disclaimer, I'm not necessarily endorsing that movie. But there's a scene in that movie where he has to go through these series of challenges to get to the supposed cup of Christ, where uh, this was supposedly the cup that he drank at the, from at the Last Supper and all that. And it's this magical thing that was going to grant eternal life. It's kind of silly. But it's, it's interesting how the Nazi, before he goes in, challenges him uh, and says, you've got to decide what you believe. You know, but he goes in there, and there's this one challenge where there's this chasm that he has to cross somehow. It's way too wide to cross. And, and the clue is basically that he has to take a step of faith, in, in essence. And so ultimately, he gets the courage up and just kind of puts his foot out and steps. And it, it isn't until he actually steps that he can see the step. And once he does, suddenly he can see this bridge that is invisible to your eye from the perspective of the ledge. But once he took the step, suddenly it's there. Suddenly he could see it. And what a, what a, I think that's a great picture, quite honestly, of our walk with the Lord sometimes. Sometimes we do have to step without even seeing that step. Sometimes we have, God moves us, knocks us off the ledge, and we have to trust he's going to catch us or that the next step's going to appear. And many times we don't see what he's doing until we obey. And we have to, obedience comes first. So it's an interesting picture. Not necessarily theologically accurate. I don't necessarily endorse watching that movie for the purpose of doctrine. But it's a good illustration. So then God proceeds in this chapter to literally give Abram the grand tour of his children's future inheritance. So <clears throat> you have to bear with me. This uh, pollen's really getting to me too. 
But he's going to take Abram and really basically kind of show him and say, look at this, look at this, look at this whole area that is inhabited currently by the Canaanites. It's all occupied. This is all going to be your families, your inheritance. This is all given to you. Consider it done. And God's going to truly show him, as he said earlier, I will show you the land. He's truly walking him through and showing him literally the land that will be his. So let's pick up in verse 2, Genesis 12, verse 2. It says, And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And remember chapter 11, verse 30, uh, just last week, we talked about how Abram, how, how Sarai, Abram's wife, was barren. It was made note of, it was a special note made in the last chapter that we were told his wife was barren. So Abram already knew this. At this point in time, when this promise is being made, when God's telling him, listen, you're going to be a great nation, Abram's probably already thinking, man, my wife can't have kids. What's, what's going on here? And we're going to see his struggle later on, aren't we? Those of you familiar with Genesis, we know he wrestles with this after some time goes by because God doesn't grant him that promise tomorrow. It doesn't come immediately. Matter of fact, it comes about 25 years later. Quite a bit of time goes by before that promised child comes. And he kind of tries to do it his own way, doesn't he? We're going to read about that. But God makes him this promise, and he already knows, at least currently, that this must be an act of God because his wife is barren. The blessing indicates material wealth, a great reputation. And it's interesting, the key of this greatness is that God is the one who is going to do it. It's not go and make your own name great. Uh, it's obey, follow, honor me, and I, the Lord, will do it. That's the message here that, a that Abram is getting. I'm going to do this. This is going to be my work, not your work. 1 Peter 5 Verse 5 says, You younger men likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the proper time. It says, You shall be a blessing, and all the families of the earth through you shall be blessed. So it's, the God, it's God who does the exalting. And when we humble ourselves before him, he can, the, the more we humble ourselves, the more willing we are as his servants, I think the greater he can use us. And to him goes the glory when it's done that way. It's not for us to do the exalting or the pursuing in that manner. It's for God to fulfill. It says, uh, again, on that last part there, you shall be a blessing and all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. Uh, he's making the point pretty clear, I think, to Abram, that it isn't about you and it's not for you. And you know what, this whole land that, they were, that his family would inherit, it's his family and his children's children that would inherit it, not even him. He's not going to really see it. It's not for him, it's through him, but it's for someone else. It says, if you do well, you are blessed greatly, but it's to be a vessel, it's to be a channel. In other words, when God blesses us, when God does great things through us, it's not really just for us, it's to pass through us. We're just to be a conduit, a vessel to pour out onto others. And that's what he's telling Abram here. He says, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We're not supposed to hold it in. We're not supposed to be a reservoir. We're supposed to be a channel. Now, obviously, this is prophetic in nature, talking about all the families of the earth being blessed. It's talking about Jesus the Messiah. 
And it's through him, really, and him alone, that such words like this could truly be fulfilled. Think about it. When Israel came in after leaving Egypt, were they a great blessing to the Canaanites? No, not really. They basically came in and did battle with them, right? They took their land, wiped many of them out. Um, that was not, I'm sure, a great blessing to the Canaanites. And many times we see throughout Israel's history with their rebellion against God and then God having to punish them and then restore them, and this cycle goes on. Um, they literally were not the blessing. <laughs> Through them came the blessing. And that's important to understand here. We even see today that Israel tends to be a bit of a scourge on this earth. And they're either God's chosen people, they're very special, and we should honor them and pray for them. But we see there's this constant strife going on. And it's not them that is the blessing. It's through them that comes the blessing. And this is prophetic, speaking very specifically of, of the Redeemer, of Jesus the Messiah himself. Jesus emphasizes God's ability to bring his plan and promise despite his people. I want to read from Matthew to you, Matthew 3, verse 9. See, it isn't about, yes, God chose the Israelites. He chose his family, and he chose them to bring about his plan of redemption. And yes, they are special in that sense. But you know what? It's about God and what he can do and what he did, not so much about how great Abraham is. Because it should give us all hope that God can use each of us in, a, in the same degree and manner in which as long as we're willing. But Matthew chapter 3, verse 9 says, do, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So he's saying, listen, don't brag about being related to Abraham. That doesn't do anything for you. It's about, it's about what God can do. It's about what God is going to do. This is Jesus speaking here. It's about the power of God and God working in and through the lives of, of men and women who are willing to serve him. So in other words, do not think you are God's great gift to mankind. Through you came God's great gift to mankind. Acts 3.25 says, you are sons of the prophets. <coughs> Excuse me. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, this is an Acts uh, and this is quoting from Genesis 12. It says, And in you, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And in Galatians 3.8 it says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you, all the nations shall be blessed. So it's even in Galatians, he's calling it the gospel message. Hmm. Um, he's calling it the gospel message is actually being preached right here in, in Genesis. When he's talking about the nations of the earth being blessed, he's actually sharing a piece of the gospel with Abram, saying, hey, the, the, the Redeemer is going to come through your family and the entire earth will have the opportunity to be saved from their iniquity because of it. So this is a piece of the gospel here, according to Galatians 3. So picking back up in Genesis 12, verse 4. It says, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Again, we don't read of any delay. We don't read <coughs> of any argument. He goes. 
And Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Good little lesson there. You're never too old to serve the Lord. And you're never too young for that matter. God called Abram to start things up when he was 75. And again, his, the promised heir didn't even come until 25 years later, as we're going to read about. So God can use anyone. The question is, are you willing? Are you committed? Will you obey? When's the best time to start? Right now. Right now. Well, actually, yesterday was a better time, but now's the next best time. But you're never too old, you're never too young. God called Abraham when he was 75. Genesis, uh, verse 5, it says, Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land to a place of Shechem, as far as the Terabith tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. It's interesting, we actually read in Acts, and I'm not going to pull it up tonight, but in Acts we also read that we're given a little more insight into God's um, instruction and calling on Abram's life. We actually read there that God began speaking to Abram way back in um, the land of Mesopotamia. And so, remember how we talked about how uh, Terah, his father, had endeavored to go to Canaan but stopped in Haran? Remember that last week? So that was the plan. And, and so we see actually from the New Testament that God had been speaking to Abram even back in Mesopotamia before they left for Haran. And then it wasn't until obviously quite a bit later that he said, okay, it's time to up and go with just you and your family. <coughs> the tree of Morah mentioned here um, is interesting. Um, doing a little research on it, it actually seems to be at that point in time to the Canaanite people some sort of place of, of, of significance, some sort of place of of, of religious worship or something that they considered holy. The word mora actually means teacher or teaching. So it's actually in some traditions known as the diviner's tree. And uh, they would obviously come there not to worship God, but uh, it was sort of a, a, a pagan spiritual symbol in that time. And we see that Abram, this is his first stop, and God starts by redeeming uh, some of the pagan worship going on in that land. And God speaks to him right at this very spot. And then Abram stops and offers, uh, sets up an altar and offers worship and a sacrifice to God right there in this place that is really a symbol and a, and a place of, of pagan worship at the time. This very tree is, is being redeemed and repurposed for the worship of God. This was a, an important uh, landmark in that land in that time. And it's very specifically mentioned a few times throughout Genesis as a place that people pass by or stop at. We'll find later on. Uh, that Rebecca's handmaid is going to be buried underneath uh, this tree. <clears throat> so this is a significant tree in that culture prior to the Israelites coming through and taking possession of the land. But God right here, step one, is reaffirming his promises here in this very spot and redeeming this, this place of pagan worship as a place to honor him and to hear from him rather than to seek a diviner or seek, seek uh, the evil spirits for teaching and information. God speaks to Abram right here at this tree. Genesis uh, 12, verse 8, picking up, it says, He moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. 
Again, these places are going to be mentioned throughout Genesis and Exodus. These are places that we're going to see uh, Abraham and his children, uh, Jacob, <coughs> and Isaac and Jacob passing through. And these, these are places that are going to become known to us as we read further in Genesis. Joshua, when he comes back and leading the children of Israel into uh, the promised land, this is going to be one of the first places that they spy out and do battle. The Battle of Ai is a famous one because it's also the place where one in the camp uh, took some spoils when they weren't supposed to. It caused a lot of devastation in the camp. But this is going to be a place that's going to be revisited as they come back much later as a great nation to conquer and to take hold of this promised land. So up to this point, Abram's doing pretty good, isn't he? He's obeying God. He's prompt about it. He left his family. He set up, he set up an altar as God spoke to him. He redeemed this place of pagan uh, worship and, and, and served and worshiped God there. He's doing pretty good up to this point. But now we get to verse 9. Now we get to the next section and his little trip to Egypt. And he doesn't do so well here. Verse 9, it says, So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. It's kind of interesting how much later in the history of Israel we find that it's a famine that drives them back to Egypt, isn't it? And eventually they end up back in Egypt because of a great famine, and God uses Joseph to save his people uh, from that famine. But ultimately that's what ends up causing them to settle there and eventually end up in bondage there. Verse 11, it says, And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he had said to Sarah, his wife, Indeed, I know you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you. They will say, This is his wife. They'll kill me, and they'll let you live. Please say, You are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. <clears throat> I don't think Abram thought this through very well. That, or he just really wasn't caring for his wife all that well. Either way, this was pretty lame of him. Uh, he basically is willing to put his wife at risk. Say, ah, just tell him you're my sister. That way they can do whatever they want with you and I'll get to live. Like, really, dude? Wow. I'm not, I'm not so impressed with your faith anymore. Um, clearly, Abram's not trusting God at this point. He's letting his fear... Uh, get a hold of him. He's thinking, you know, we've got this famine. It's forcing us to go to this place. <clears throat> and he's now worked up this whole scenario in his head that he's going to get killed because his wife's so beautiful. And so he figures out some sort of plan, a terrible one at that, to rescue himself. And this is, unfortunately, what's, what's even more sad is that this story uh, that we read is, is, is not the last time that he makes this mistake. Um, he actually repeats this mistake. And as they say, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Um, but he makes this foolish decision, obviously due to fear and a lack of faith. So up to this point, he's done some great things in obeying God and exercising faith. And now he has an utter failing. And fear always leads to mistakes. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, The fear of man brings a what? A snare. It's a trap, and but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And Abram uh, did the classic fear of man thing, and it did bring a snare. Abram's sin caused great pain and suffering in other people's lives, as we're going to read here. And it's an important lesson for us. Let's read on in verse 14. It says, And so it was when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman, and she was very beautiful. 
And the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house, and he treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So here it wasn't anything like he expected. He expected that his, wife was, his life was going to be in danger because she was so beautiful and all of this. And matter of fact, Pharaoh treated him very well uh, and, and was very giving and gracious to him. And yet, because of Abram's sin, because of his lack of faith, we see Pharaoh and his whole house getting completely plagued because they took because he took Abram's wife. And, you know, and he didn't know, and for him it was a sin of ignorance in a way, but because of Abram's fear, and because of his lack of faith, he caused great pain on many others. And that, again, is an important illustration of a lesson for us. Does our sin only affect us? No, it doesn't. And, you know, that's, I think, a common lie that the enemy would tell us. Oh, it doesn't want to affect anyone else, Right? It's just gonna. It's just you. You know, you can handle this. You can. You can. You can flirt with that sin or with that temptation. You can go down this road. It's, it's not gonna affect anyone. That's a lie. Our sin always affects other people. It always not only affects us, but it hurts and affects other people. Sin is like a cancer, and it, it's like a disease that just spreads like a plague. And we see the plague here, quite literally, in Egypt. And Egypt, as we'll see reading farther on, is a picture of sin in Scripture. Egypt is a picture of sin itself. And we see how the Israelite nation later on, they go to Egypt to, uh, to escape the, uh, um, the famine, but then they stay there and they camp there, and it ultimately results in what? They become slaves to Egypt. And that's why it's actually a really good picture of sin in the Old Testament. And we see Moses being like a type of Christ, rescuing them from that bondage, from that slavery, Jesus himself says in the New Testament that whoever commits sin is a what? A slave to sin. And Egypt is a picture of that for us, of, of falling into that trap. It's a picture of sin, and it's also kind of a picture of self-reliance, of trying to come up with a way to redeem or rescue yourself. So let's read on. It says, And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So clearly, <clears throat> he got the message from somewhere. Maybe even God told him, hey, what are you doing? Uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is his wife. And he didn't know. It says, now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So, so much for hospitality. Abram kind of ruined it for himself there. Uh, he got kicked out of Egypt. And so Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram, with his unjustified fear, caused all these problems. His lack of faith caused all these problems. And quite frankly, Pharaoh acted more nobly than Abram did in this story. And it's a stark reminder to us that we see the same condition happening here today uh, in our modern church, in our modern world. How many times have I heard stories I know in business, in, in about my business and doing the things that I do, dealing with a lot of business owners, I've heard people say, I will never do business with a Christian again. How sad is that? Because of how poorly they represented Christ in their poor ethics, their poor 
work, their poor work, uh, work ethic, their honesty, everything. They were just had this horrible, lazy attitude. And, and if, unfortunately, it's, it's all too common when we see where people of the world behave more noble than Christians. May it never be said. How tragic is that? How that destroys our witness when we're poor stewards of our time, our resources, our money, uh, and we're inhospitable. Um, it's a terrible, terrible thing to ever be said of someone who names the name of Christ. But you see those people, you know, with the, with the fish logo on their truck and on their business card and on all their marketing material, and they're ripping people off. And it, for them, it's just a marketing leverage. And it's, just, it's, it's, it's sad. It really makes me angry. I really, I really hate it when I see people do things in the name of God and utterly misrepresent him. I, I, just, I just tell them, listen, just don't tell people you're a Christian, please. Take, take it off your card. Do your thing. Just don't tell people that you're a Christian because you're, you're leading them astray. And there's going to be great judgment for that. Jesus himself spoke of that. Ephesians 2, verse 4. I want to uh, wrap it up with this encouragement, in, uh, picking up in Ephesians chapter 2. As Christians, we are held to a higher standard, yes. But ultimately, <clears throat> the work that we see happening here in Genesis 12 is a work of God. It's not, uh, this whole story really illustrates that, again, it's God who made the choosing, who did the calling, and who's going to bring about his promise and his covenant. Yes, Abram was a man of faith, and he did some, some great things in trusting God, but he also was a man, and he also was flawed and fearful, and he made mistakes. And it illustrates the point for us. I think that's recorded for us because it's, it's, we're not meant to think too highly of Abraham. He was a man, just like you and I. He was a flawed man. And it's only by God's grace and mercy and the fact that he always keeps his promises that this whole plan came about and that his purposes were fulfilled. And the same thing is true for us today. In Ephesians 2, <coughs> excuse me, verse 4 through 10, gives us this instruction. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that anyone would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And as surely as God had a plan for Abraham and his family and for his, the nation that would come from him, that ultimately through him, truly everyone would be blessed. We would be blessed. We would be the recipients of great blessing because of what God did through Abraham and through his children's children. But it wasn't because Abraham was just such a great guy. Yes, he was a man of faith. He had his successes, but he also had his failures. It was a gift of God. It was a work of God, lest he should boast. And we're in the same boat. And his story should be an encouragement to us. And I love how the Bible is so honest. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't paint this picture of the Old Testament saints or even the New Testament ones as flawless. And that's, to me, one of the evidences that it is indeed God's word. It, it paints it real, tells it like it is, 
These people were just human. They had their successes. They, even David called a man after God's own heart. We still see his failures. And if this was a work of man, I think we would see uh, how they would try and dress it up and cover things up and exalt certain people and, and then paint others very dramatically another way. But it's just God tells it like it is. So here's the record. Here's the story of how I've redeemed you, how I'm going to save you because I'm God, because I say so, because I'm good and because I always do what I'm going to say, because God fu always fulfills his promises. And God made a covenant to Noah. He made a, he made a promise and a covenant to Adam and Eve when they fell, and he will fulfill it. He will fulfill it despite Abraham, not just because of him, but despite him. And God has prepared us as his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. And so may we obey the call as Abram did, and it won't be without failings and shortcomings, but we've got to let go of those things that maybe we're holding too tightly to and be willing to do whatever God would ask of us. And that's the place where God wants us to be. It's not about how much we do or don't have. It's about how tightly we hold to it. It's about how important it is to us. Would we, would we be willing to give it up if God asked us to? That's how we measure where we're at in our faith with God. It isn't whether we have great material wealth and blessing or very little. It's where is our faith? What are we trusting in? And are we willing to obey should God give us that call? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening and for how the plan of redemption is now beginning to unfold, how it happens because of your faithfulness, because you can't lie, because you are good. And Lord, I thank you for the hope that we can have by looking at <coughs> Abraham's example in not only his success, but even in his failings. It gives us encouragement and hope knowing you can use us greatly despite our shortcomings, despite our lack of faith. Lord, help us to trust you and to obey you. Lord, help us to follow Abraham's example in letting go of the things that we might be holding too tightly to, to answer your call, to obey you in whatever you would call us to obey you in. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of your evening.